You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. And today we are looking at Mark chapter 12, and I'm going to be reading from verses 28 to 44. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well, said the teacher, the man replied, you are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple court, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Great, thank you very much, Matt. And can I add my welcome to Matt? My name's Ralph, and I'm one of the leaders here at City Church. And it's my privilege to be able to bring you that next portion of the gospel of Mark. Let us bow our heads. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have given us 
this great commandment. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to grasp what it is saying to us today. Help us to meet love as we meet with you in your word by the power of your spirit. Amen. Well, can I ask you, what is love? Well, listen to six-year-old Dave explain it. He says, love will find you, even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. Uh, Maya, age nine, says, no one is quite sure why love happens, but I've heard it's got something to do with the way that you smell. That's why people spend so much time and energy on perfume and aftershave. Or Kenny, age seven, he says, it gives me a headache even to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. Love, love is hard to define and describe, isn't it? And yet we have a sense that it is intrinsic, it is central to who we are as human beings. We desire love, we, we long for it. We, we long to love someone else and for them to love us back. We think love will fulfill us. That's why the Beatles' most famous song was All You Need Is Love. And what's really interesting is that we find Jesus saying almost exactly the same thing 2,000 years earlier in the passage that Matt has just read for us. Would you look down at Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31? What's the most important thing according to Jesus? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. All you need is love, says Jesus. Which brings us to our first point today, why you need love. And the first thing that we need to see is that the Beatles got it wrong. Big surprise there. The Beatles got it wrong. You see, the Beatles said that love, love was all about being set free from rules and restrictions, throwing off the shackles of expectation. They said, there's nothing you can do that can't be done. Nothing that you can sing that can't be sung. There's nowhere that you can go that isn't where you're meant to be. It's easy. That that was the cry of the swinging 60s, the the decade of sexual liberation, of of getting rid of sexual taboos, of breaking away from rigid morality. Well, last week we met a group that were a lot like the Beatles. Not in their singing, but in their worldview. They were called the Sadducees. Do you remember the Sadducees from verse 18 of chapter 12? They were the liberal elite. They they held the power in the Jerusalem council, but they didn't hold to the Bible. Not to all of it, anyway. They literally ripped pages out of the Torah. In fact, they only adopted the first five books of the Jewish Bible. 
And that meant that they rejected the existence of angels. They rejected the existence of a life after death. They were, they were libertarians. They wanted to shake off the shackles of rules and regulations. Like a first century version of Elsa from Frozen, their cry was, let it go, let it go. We'll do what we want to do, we'll think what we want to think, we'll love how we want to love, outside the rigid structures of what other people think we should do. We're free. The problem is, that just isn't the way that the world works. What do I mean? Well, my eldest child, Sophie, she turned 17 at the beginning of November, and you all know what that means, don't you? You are no longer safe on the roads in Manchester. She can drive. And the first step of learning to drive, which I didn't have to do when I took my test almost 30 years ago now, is you need to pass the driving theory test. You need to do that before you can book your practical test. And that involves pouring over 20 plus hours of rules of the highway code in order to sit an exam to work out whether you know the highway code. Why? Why, why do you need to do that? Well, because it is not loving to drive down the Mancunian Way and simply cry out, let it go with the rules of the road. It's not loving to drive down the M62 just being what you want to be. You need to follow the rules. We need rules to be safe. We need rules to be loving. And we instinctively know that to be the case, don't we? Even with those rules that, that our society says are repressive and restrictive. We know that ultimately they are for our own good. I mean, think about the Ten Commandments. Commandments like, do not commit adultery. Our culture tells us that that's just a silly rule. It's illiberal, it's unloving, it's restricting love. But think about what the purpose of it is. To, to protect a husband and wife. To protect their loving relationship with one another. To provide a safe and secure environment in which their children can grow up. Or, or think about, do not give false testimony. Do not lie. But surely, surely a, a little white lie doesn't matter, not really. Well, yes, it does, because it corrodes trust. It, it undermines loving relationships. The truth is that we need rules. Which is why this teacher of the law, this teacher of the rules, comes to Jesus in verse 28. They're in the temple courts, and the teacher has heard Jesus debating with the Sadducees. He's heard that Jesus is a really wise teacher, and he knows that Jesus understands the importance of the commandments, of rules. They're necessary for a right relationship with God. So he comes to Jesus, but he says that there's just one problem. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day, they 
counted up the commandments in the Old Testament, and they'd found that there were no less than 613 commands. That's 365 prohibitions, negative commands, and 248 positive commands. You thought 10 commandments were a lot. 613. And the Jews realized that it was an awful lot of rules. So they divided up the rules into the bigger rules and the smaller rules, the weightier commandments and the lighter commandments. Those commandments that were most important and took precedence and those that you could just overlook if they came into conflict. And so the teacher of the law, he comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, which is the weightiest? Which command is king? Which command takes precedence over all the others? We need rules, but we can't fulfill them all. So Jesus, tell me which one I need to keep. Which one is the most important? The question was a a little bit like the question from the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Do you remember that from a few weeks ago? Tell me what I must do to inherit eternal life. Now look at how Jesus responds. He quotes from two Old Testament passages, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 to 5 and Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 and he says all you need is love. You must love God, that's Deuteronomy 6, and you must love others, that's Leviticus chapter 19. Now, other religious teachers of the day, they did focus on these passages individually. But no one, no one, as far as we know, had ever put these two passages together until Jesus. And it's really important. Because you see, love for one another flows out of love for God according to Jesus. Horizontal love is an outworking of vertical love. Russell Moore, he's a pastor in the United States of America, and in his book, Adoption for Life, he recounts the journey that he and his wife went on in order to adopt two brothers from an orphanage in Russia. And their first visit to the orphanage was really, really harrowing. It was dark, it was dank. There were row after row of cot beds where the young children were just sat in their mess, poorly clothed. But he said that the thing that struck them above all other things was the eerie silence. Not a peep from the children. Because they'd given up crying because no one responded to their cries anymore. And and they remember coming up to some of the cots and reaching out towards the child and immediately they pulled back the child. You see, having not experienced love from a parent, they really struggled to express love horizontally. To express love horizontally, you need to have experienced love vertically. We need love. But but what is love? That's our second point today. Now, I need you to do something for me, okay? Humor me with this. The problem with this passage 
is that if you've been reading your Bible for a long time, you're familiar with this passage. This is quite a well-known passage of the Bible. And there's a danger, because you know it so well, you will think you know what's there even before you've looked at it. So, So what I want you to do is just... Put all those things out of your mind, okay? Just, just forget about them for a minute. And now look at verse 29 again. The teacher asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, etc., etc." Is that what it says? Well, now look again. Jesus says... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. What is love according to Jesus? Well, the first thing we see is that love is undivided. Deuteronomy chapter 6, what Jesus is quoting from, it begins with what is known as the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, the pious Jew of the day, they would have repeated the Shema morning and evening every single day. And it was a truly radical thing to say. You see, in those days, this was before they entered the promised land, there were lots and lots of different people groups in the promised land, and each people group had their own God. And so when one people group would invade and and take over the land of another, they would bring in their God, but at the same time they would placate the God that was already there. The God of Baal or the God of Dagon. Into that, Deuteronomy 6 insists, no, 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 no. There is only one God and he is The idea that we should love only one God, that was absolutely radical back in Jesus' day. And you know, it's just as radical today. What do you love? Maybe you're here this afternoon and you call yourself a Christian. You say, well, well, I love God. That's who I love. Great, that's really good. But is that love undivided? What do you find yourself daydreaming about? What is the thing that you think will make you happy if only you could get it? Maybe a job, a spouse, a child, good health. What... If you lost it, would make you think that your life was completely not worth living anymore. We might not worship Baal or Dagon today, but all too often our hearts are divided. They do chase after other things. The love we need, the love Jesus tells us we need, is an undivided love. Secondly, it is an all-encompassing love. Did you notice the repetition of all in verse 30? All your heart, that means the seat of your being, not just your emotions. All your soul, that means your life principle. 
All your mind, that's your cognitive function. All your strength, that's your will, the the force that motivates everything else in your life. Now, there's overlap between those four things, but the point is that love for God is supposed to be all-embracing. That's not how we tend to think about love today, is it? We talk about falling in love and falling out of love. It's entirely passive. It's it's something that is done to us rather than something that we're actively involved in. And we can take that into the realm of how we experience love for God. So we yearn for a spiritual encounter. Something that will radically engage our emotions. Something that will be done to us. Maybe, maybe it's through singing in a church service or through some spiritual encounter. We want something supernatural to engage us on an emotional level. Now, I, I'm not saying that that is wrong. That is a good thing. But it is incomplete. Can I let you in on a secret? I haven't always supported Manchester City Football Club. And it's shocking, okay, you who've been here a while, you know that I talk about Manchester City a lot. But in all honesty, I only supported Manchester City a couple of years before moving to Manchester. But as I started to watch their games, as I started visiting the stadium, as I started studying their players, as I started grieving with all the other City fans when we lost a match, I began to love Manchester City. Love for God is all-encompassing. It involves our emotions, yes, but it also involves our minds growing in our knowledge of God deliberately, intentionally, whether we feel like it or not. It involves our strength, willing to spend time with God in his word and in prayer, whatever we're feeling like. It involves our souls, the very source of our spiritual beings, throwing ourselves upon God wholly, without caveat, completely abandoning ourselves to him. It's all-encompassing. Thirdly, it is other-focused. Look at verse 31. Now, it's important to say that Jesus is not teaching here that we need to work really hard on loving ourselves. There are some people who use this passage to say that that Jesus was the forerunner of the self-esteem movement. If you want to grow, you need to learn to love yourself. I don't think Jesus is saying that because I don't think Jesus thought he needed to say that. We do not have a problem with loving ourselves. It comes naturally to us. But Jesus is saying here that you need to love other people just as you love yourself. It's the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to yourself. And here's the radical thing, and it is truly radical. You can only do that if you love God. No, no, I know what you're thinking right now. You're thinking, hey, Ralph, 
I know lots of people who aren't Christians who are some of the nicest people in the world. People who, who run soup kitchens, who, who volunteer for charities, who, who do so much good. And, and I agree that there are lots and lots of people like that. But the tricky thing to ask is, is that really love? Uh, the 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant put his finger on the issue here. He said, all too often we do good to others because of the good that it brings us. M- making us look good. Making us feel less guilty. Making us feel more useful. In other words, we use people as a means to an end. But that's not love. It's only love. If we've been transformed by the love of God, and that has freed us to love others, not as a means to an end, but as an end in itself. But but that's not the thing that I want us to focus on today. You see, It's not only that you can't love others if you don't love God, but it works the other way around as well. You cannot love God, not truly, unless you also love your neighbor as yourself. Which brings us on to verses 38 to 40. Jesus is still in the temple and he says, watch out for the teachers of the law. Now, the teachers of the law, they were the people that, that everyone assumed loved God. They knew their Bibles back to front. They were very, very pious. They prayed lengthy prayers. They were so respected that they had the very, very best seats in the temple. But, Jesus says, but they devour widows and they will be judged ever so severely. Verse 40. You see, a scandal had broken out not long before. There was a Jewish scribe who'd swindled a wealthy woman named Fulvia. He'd taken lots and lots of money from her. And everyone, right up to the Roman emperor, were outraged at what this scribe had done. And Jesus is saying, you cannot love God unless you also love your neighbor. The two go hand in hand. Later in John chapter 13, Jesus will say, this is how everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. My friends, you do not love God if you do not love your fellow city church member. You do not love God if you do not love the rough sleeper that you walk past on your way into church if you do not love trafficked women and children, if you do not love the person in your office, your classroom, who no one else wants to give the time of day to. It's that simple. So how are we measuring up in this? Fourthly, love involved giving your life away. 
Uh, Take a look at verses 41 to 44. Uh, Jesus sits down in the temple, and he's opposite the temple treasury. Now, the temple at the time, it operated a little bit like a bank does today. Uh, So people would come into the temple, and they would make investments. And there were these giant shofar chests, which were like a big ram's horn. And people would come along, and they would put their coins into the end of the ram's horn, and you would hear the sound as the coin dropped. So many people came, and they came with their bundles of coins, and they threw the coins into this ram's horn. Bang, 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 bang. But then this poor widow shuffles to the treasury. And she puts in her two tiny coins. The smallest in circulation, virtually worthless. And no one even hears them drop because they're so light. And Jesus says, verse 43, she, she has given more than everyone else combined. As one commentator has put it, for Jesus, the value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. You see, the other people, they gave a lot of money, but they gave from their margin. It didn't change what they ate that night. It didn't change the horse they rode back home on. It didn't change the villa that they returned to. But this widow, she gave out of her poverty. You know, the translation we have in verse 44, it doesn't quite do the original justice. The widow didn't simply give everything she had to live on. More literally, it says she gave the whole of her life. That's it. That's the essence of the sort of love that Jesus is talking about here. You can only love someone, only love someone in the way that Jesus describes if you are willing to give your life away for them. You know, that's the promise that a husband and wife makes when they go to the front of the church and make vows before God to one another. They're saying, I'm giving away my rights. I'm giving away my life. I'm giving away my finances. I'm giving away my future to you. That's the decision you make if you have a child and you decide to love that child. You're saying, I'm giving away my future. I'm giving away my life. I'm giving away my rights. I'm giving everything to you. That is the essence of love. And that is what we commit to if we love God. If we really love God. So how are you measuring up today? All you need is love. But my heart is utterly divided. My love is half-hearted and lazy. It's self-centered. I hold back. Boy, do I hold back. So how do you get a love like this? Well, that brings us to the third point today. Look back to verse 34. There we find Jesus' assessment 
of the man who asked him the question. He recognizes that the teacher of law has answered wisely, and he says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now that's really interesting, isn't it? Because so far, in this chapter, the Pharisees have come to Jesus, the Herodians have come to Jesus, the Sadducees have come to Jesus. They've all asked him a question, just like the teacher of the law, and it's got really, really antagonistic. And at the end, they seem to be a million miles away from Jesus. But this man, Jesus says he's not far. Why? We'll look at verse 33. Uh, The man, he's standing in the temple courts right next to the altars. And he says that loving God and loving your neighbor is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices that have taken place on these altars. You see, the Old Testament recognized that we had failed to love God as we should. All of us. We, we all have divided hearts, chasing after money and power and comfort and sex. We all are half-hearted. We all are self-centered. The Bible calls that sin. Putting ourselves in the center of our lives, using people as a means to an end, setting the rules. And God, because he's just, he must judge that rebellion. And that's why the Bible put in place a system of sacrifices. They were intended to be a picture of how God could judge sin and yet let the sinner go free. On the altars of the temple where Jesus and this man were standing, bull after bull, goat after goat, lamb after lamb would have been killed. Blood would have flowed out because the people did not love the Lord their God and love each other as they should. But now, standing in front of Jesus... This teacher of the law, he looks at Jesus and then he looks at the altars where all this blood has flowed and he says they're not needed anymore. Why? Well, that brings us to the question that Jesus asks in verses 35 to 37. Look at that with me. Uh, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 as a psalm of David, King David, and he's looking forward in it to a Messiah to come to God's anointed king who was promised. Now, everyone expected the Messiah, the anointed king, to be a a descendant of David. That's what God had promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And they expected he'd come as a military ruler to bring victory for God's people. He'd come as a warrior, the great son of David who would conquer the land for the people. But look at what David recognized. The Messiah would be David's Lord. The Lord, that's talking about the Lord God, said to my Lord... That's the promised Messiah. You see, the promised king to come, he wouldn't simply be a son of David. 
he would be the very son of the Lord God himself. He wouldn't just defeat Israel's earthly enemies, the Romans. No, he would defeat the world's spiritual enemies, sin and Satan. And he would do it through love. Through Jesus, David's Lord, God's son, who is the king of love. The love we need. You see, Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of God. His love for God was undivided. When Satan tempted him in the wilderness, he said no. He loved God with all of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, all of his strength. Jesus sweated blood in Gethsemane, wrestling with all the strength he had to go through with the cross. Jesus was utterly other-focused. In the words of Mark chapter 10, verse 45, he gave his life, his life as a ransom for many. At Gethsemane, he cried out to the Lord God, yet not my will, but yours be done. And he, and he alone, gave all his life away. He is the king of love. The, the one who was eternally rich, yet became poor. The one who was utterly complete and yet was smashed to pieces. The one who had life to the full, yet gave it fully away. That is the love we need. And here's the thing. If you get that love, it will utterly transform you. That will enable you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That will free you to love your neighbor as yourself. Because it is a love that says that you are approved. You no longer need to push others down to push yourself up. It's a love that says you're safe. You no longer need to take from others to protect yourself. It's a love that says you're rich. You're free to give away your money, your talents, your very life for the glory of God and the good of others. It's a love that says to you tonight, you are mine. And that will enable you to embrace everyone to yourself. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you Thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you that you are love itself. As you came into our world to love with the love that was beyond us. To love with an undivided heart. To love in an all-encompassing way. To, to love in a way that was completely others-orientated, to love 
in the fullest way, giving your life for ours, laying down your riches that we who are poor might be made rich. Oh God, with that love, transform our hearts today so that we might truly love you with all of our heart, all of our minds, all of our souls and all of our strengths and that we might love our neighbour as ourselves. Amen.